Hi everyone and welcome to another Firms Consulting Podcast. Uh, before I begin, I must point out that this is going to be a long and a detailed podcast because uh, a couple of clients and readers have asked that I um, reintroduce the podcast series whereby I used to talk in a lot of detail about actual projects I've done. So the project I'm going to talk about today is the process to privatize and commercialize a former state-owned railway and logistics company in an... Um, I suppose it's a, it's a partially developing economy. And I'm going to go into a lot of detail about the way it was done, the way the project was structured. I, at this point, I was a junior partner principal, and I was one of several partners on the project because it was just such a large engagement. And I'm going to specifically split the discussion into two parts. Uh, the privatization process, you know, how we split and sold, how we decided which assets should be split and how we'd sell off the non-core parts of the business, uh, the issues behind each decision we had to take, uh, how we completed the task, and some of the key learnings that um, I felt the firm should have extracted from the engagement. Then the second part I'd look at would be the commercializing the, um, the, the, the new companies that we created. Uh, and within that, I want to look at three things. First is um, how do we set up these new divisions or new businesses um, to work within a commercial environment, you know, a standalone competitive commercial environment. Second, I want to look at the, some of the problems um, we encountered and how we tackled them. They were quite interesting. And finally, some of the key lessons that I think, again, the firm should have taken out of this and readers who are either you know aspiring to be management consultants and who are currently, whether you're a principal listening to this at you know a firm or even you're a more um, entry-level person or an analyst, you know, some of the lessons you could take. I think I'll, I'll briefly mention my role in the project so you can understand the lens through which I'm viewing this. I'll be honest that I was actually quite surprised to be put under this project. I was called on a Saturday morning by one of the senior partners and I was asked if I'd be willing, if my previous work was wrapping up and if I'd be willing to come across for just a week to help this engagement team. And the reason I was asked to go across is for two things. Firstly, I have a lot of experience working with state-owned enterprises, so I understand the the um, issues, the conflicts, and really the the difficulty of getting decisions made when you've got the government wary about the backlash in the media and you've got an opposition party making a big deal about everything. So it was the first thing that um, I could have introduced to the project. The second reason I was brought to the project is my, I did a lot of work for resources and energy companies. And if you know anything about rail companies, they usually have a commercial arm that serves, sorry, they have a consumer rail network that serves consumers of citizens and they usually also have a, uh, a side of the rail business which probably brings in most of the money that transports goods for large companies whether it's coal copper iron or whatever it is and obviously it would be good to have someone who had worked with those kind of companies and understood some of the issues um, so it was only meant to be a week-long engagement for me to to introduce that thinking and I end up spending the time on the entire engagement because as I explained throughout the project I managed to sink my feet my teeth into the project. I built a fairly good relationship with the chief operating officer again um, and when I say again I tend to what I mean is I tend to get along well with COOs surprisingly and CFOs so um, I was able to do then this project as well, and the senior partner thought I should be there. And my main role here was understanding the privatization process. So I was one of two partners, one senior partner, I was the junior partner, the principal in the privatization process, and on commercializing the new 
passenger train operating companies. There was a senior partner and a junior partner, so a fairly big team, right? I think that over the course of this engagement, there were something like 22 consultants at its peak. And uh, we also worked with um, PwC, who were advising on the tax side of uh, privatizing the business. And I must say, they did an exceptional job, which I'll talk about later. And we worked with Ernest and Young, who was involved on the operations implementation side, who again did an astonishingly good job, you know, best in class I've ever seen anyone do operations work in my life. And I'll talk about that more later and how, you know, the firm integrated with these two other consulting firms and worked with them. And also, it was my first time really working with an accounting firm, two accounting firms in such a large project. So um, I've had some run-ins with them in before, but never on this scale and this sustained period. So I can give some credible insight into the differences, but also some of the understated strengths of these two organizations in particular. So let's just talk about the project in, in background, right? The project had been the privatization of the railways within this country had been split into six parts. Part one was the lack of performance during state ownership. Part two was people knew how bad it is and the government kept on pushing for changes and we saw some improvement. Part three was when the improvement didn't come fast enough and state coffers were running dry, the decision was made is that they needed to restructure the business and prepare it for privatization which is where we came in as a consulting firm. Part four was then the actual process of transferring it to the private sector, which basically means selling parts of the business. Again, we were involved in that. Part five was trans was basically getting them ready to operate on a commercial basis, which was part five. And, and that also involved actually working with the companies that bought parts of these businesses, which I'll talk about more later. And then part... Six, which we were involved in as well, is rationalizing the industry. And what I mean by that is that when you split up the business, and this is a huge, gigantic state-owned enterprise, when you split it up into different parts, you sometimes create three companies doing the same thing. And there's a lack of efficiencies, lack of scale, and it's going to happen. Regions, you may have more regions than you thought made sense. And then after you look at how the privatization worked for a few years you say well okay this didn't work so well let's just go in and consolidate certain things so this is we when i when i talk about this project this was something like a four-year engagement the restructuring and the privatization and the transfer to the private sector was about a year-long uh, engagement of varying degrees of intensity of firm involvement and then we came in about three years later to rationalize the industry as well so the background is that, you know, at that point, the um, Minister of State Transport had made a decision with the Minister of Finance or Public, or Public Finances that the biggest drain on the coffers was the railway system. And there were a lot of industry complaining that the rails railway system was not working so the railway department has set up three objectives loosen government control in the railways inject competition and introduce market forces and then attract investment from the private sector to fix the railways thereby negating the government need to inject funds and the 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 feeling was that the government had done their own internal studies and had made some commitments to the public 
before they had started the process. So really, we were working towards some deadlines that were already committed to and we had to meet them, even though not, I would say, a hell of a lot of science went into them. But that's not to say this government was incompetent. I mean, they were a pretty well-trained bunch. They knew what they were doing. Um, they had, I would say it was one of the few times I'd seen state-owned and employees committed to doing what was necessary for the greater good, right? Let's understand some of the broader issues. Like any government, the opposition party believed that this was never going to happen, and the opposition party was fighting it aggressively because they had the labor unions on their side, right? So while the labor unions were on the side of the opposition, and while the labor unions were strong in the railways, they would, their power had been significantly eroded over time, and this was the last of the major privatizations that were going to take place. And the labor unions and the opposition decided that this was going to be the time they took a stand. And I mean, whether or not they were right, I don't think they were right. You know, I believe in free markets. Um, and the point is they probably just wanted to take a stand for election reasons. The other, re the other thing we had to deal with, the, third, the second major broader issue, is the fact that the government was playing a balancing act around when they would do certain things in the privatization timeline to make them look good for the election as well. For example, they, they set up certain things to be done that they thought would go well so that when the election came along, those things that went well had been implemented and they ended up looking well, right? So as we entered the study and we started re-crunching the numbers and re-looking at the assumptions, we'd go to them and say, hey, you know what, you thought this was going to go well, but it's actually not going to go well. So we think you need to shift this. So it was almost as if we were, you know, trying to fix a plane in midair as things were, you know, with very little information. And, you know, you, you're in midair, you realize you don't need a part to land the plane and you've got to improvise. So it's pretty difficult. The other one is that there were quite a lot of stakeholders involved here. You've got the the state-owned rail company, you've got the regulator, you've got the regional, for lack of a better word, regulator, you've got industry, which is has a lot of power here, and you've got the labor unions, which are pretty powerful as well. So you've got these three dynamics at play. Now, in, when you're visualizing what we did, I want you to visualize the following things that took place over a four-year period, right? For the privatization process, four things. You, one, split the businesses. Two, do, now, now let me just explain what I mean by split the businesses. You've got a state-owned enterprise that owns everything. It owns the rail yards. It owns the maintenance side. It owns the uh, regional offices. It owns the, the ticketing system. Everything that is required to run the railway lines in the, company, in the country is owned by one state-owned enterprise. Some of those things are wildly inefficient. Some of those things shouldn't have been built in the first place. So we have to split up these businesses. Now, when you split up the businesses, it doesn't mean that the railway system doesn't need these businesses. It just means that the railway company itself doesn't have to keep it under its own roof. They can exist outside the railway company, but they're left to service the railway company. So after you split the business, the second thing you have to do is you have to develop the contractual relationship between all of the split parts. They have to agree the terms through which they will cooperate, otherwise the railway system shuts down. That's the second part. The third part is you have to prioritize which businesses are going to be sold, right? And that's a hard job to do, right? You have to determine, okay, firstly, which businesses 
need to be under the control of the railway company and which must exist in the market. Of those that are going to exist in the market, what is the sequence through which we're going to privatize, private, um, privatize them or so, sell them? Are we going to sell the most difficult ones first? Are we going to sell the most crucial ones first? Are we going to sell the ones that need investment first so they can have a a longer runway to collect the investment. So it's a difficult process. The fourth thing is then preparing the businesses for sale, which is, I'll get into that later, but it's a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. And for people listening to this podcast, if you listen to that sequence, splitting, developing the contractual links, prioritizing the businesses and preparing the businesses for sale, in some ways, there's a, this is a corporate strategy, turnaround, private equity kind of project, right? So this is the four steps to managing the privatization process. The, there are three steps, if I remember correctly, to managing the commercialization of the parts that remain within the railway division. They have to now start operating in a, on a commercial basis, competing against prayers who may enter the market. There are three steps there. The first one is we have to install new business processes. That means new accounting systems, new budgeting systems, new HR systems. Once you, or as you're installing the processes, you have to build the capabilities of the organization to use those processes. At the simplest level is just teaching regional managers and capital yards or rolling yards managers on how to develop a budget, which they've never done before. The third thing you do under commercializing a business is developing a commercial mindset. How do you train people within the organization to treat a customer as if the customer is not obligated to work with them and as if the customer is the most important person? And how do you teach them to make decisions to improve the business because no one really needs to use the business and you have to earn the right to use the business. So again, privatizing is split into four parts. Commercializing is split into three parts. The three parts for commercializing is installing new business processes, building capabilities, and developing the commercial mindset. And I'm thankful that I wasn't involved in the commercializing side because it looked difficult, to be honest. And I'll talk about that later. So for whatever reason, the, on the on the commercializing side, the government had gone ahead and started the hardware investment, putting in the new systems and pros, the new systems, and you know new IT systems and so on. And then they put in the software investment. It was a very weird way of doing things because typically you don't start the hardware investment until you know what software you want to run, so you know what systems you need to have in place. But anyway, they went ahead and did it, and I think. Um, PwC and Ernest and Young, which I'll talk about later, did a pretty good job of managing that you know, weird way of running things. Now, let's just step a little bit above the battlefield because the battlefield is you've got this company, you've got all these consultants here, you've got all the stakeholders all duking it out, right? What are the big three um, underlying tensions that play here? You've got three underlying tensions, which are, which are three tensions every successful management consultant needs to manage. You've got to be politically astute, emotionally intelligent, and rationally brilliant. Now, let's talk about each one. The politics are there for obvious reasons. You've got a government facing a re-election. You've got a regulator pushing for deregulation to make the country competitive. You've got the opposition making a mess or crying bloody murder. And you've got a very aggressive media which is printing everything and publishing it as the rollout takes place. So that's external political issues. Internal political issues is you've got... Internally, there were some management teams working on a buyout but with private equity teams and so on, which is very rare in a state-owned case because you, you're appointed by the state. It's so rare to see a state-owned team running a management bid. And then while this was happening in the press, 
internally the government and the rail operator were not sure that privatization could work at all and that they should even go ahead and even try this right that's the political side on the emotional side I think this is the obvious reasons. You've got different stakeholders clashing together. People worry that they will lose their job rightly because when you're rolling out efficiencies into a business, usually one of the first places you cut inefficiencies is the number of people you employ. Second, their compensation scheme is pared down. And beyond that, you also decide to sell some businesses, which means that if you can't find a buyer for that business, you shut it down and even more people are unemployed, right? You've also got the effects on the staff of the um, railway company, you know, there's a, uh, one thing that I always upsets me when I hear people talk about public sector employees. They make it sound like public sector employees are lazy, dumb idiots who are just incompetent. And it's not really the case. You've got people there that have worked in the rail department their whole lives, 40 years, 50 years. Some of them a few years away from pension. Some of them who have no means of finding other jobs because the investment on reskilling them never took place. And they have to deal with this massive disruption knowing full well that they'll lose their jobs. A lot of them did lose their jobs. And on the rational side, you've got a lot of, simply put, you've got a lot of commitments that were made by the government. And a lot of it is not really backed up by analysis. And then you've got to analyze the existing businesses and beat them into shape so that and while you're beating them into shape, you've got to make sure they don't disrupt the railway lines, but lose enough fat and become lean enough so they're attractive to private sector suitors. That's pretty difficult to do. Now, I made the comment that the government made these decisions without proper analysis. That's not an indictment of the government. I think if you look at any private public sector work along the, around the world, it's not that the government is making decisions. If the government doesn't tell the media what it's doing, the media accuses them of a blackout. When the government gives the media preliminary results, the media says, why did you say this? Because you're just causing panic. We should have given us more concrete results. If the government waits enough to give concrete results, the media says, why are you taking so long? So I, my perception, having worked with state-owned enterprise a lot of times, I don't think they're doing much more than they could do. Or they're not doing things as bad as the private sector company. They're just exposed to much more expectations, right? So let's talk about now the splitting up of the businesses, right? Um, you know, one of the quotes that um, one of the ministers said, which is, you know, absolutely true, is that they were devising policy while they were simultaneously implementing it, which is true. You know, they were going ahead and and working out this policy, but they had really no idea what the implementation was going to be. And, and you had no choice, right? Um, no matter what they did, there's always going to be so many moving parts that they could never have predicted everything, you know, in advance. So let, let's just talk to the big steps here. The first challenge on the privatization step, which I was quite involved in, was to structure the business for, for sale. You've got one large vertically integrated company, for those of you without a business background, a vertically integrated company is one which owns each part of the chain that goes from sourcing of materials all the way to delivering it to consumers. In this case, a vertically indicated rail company would be one that would actually do R&D to build railway lines and, and you know the coaches and the engines. It would build them, it would service them, it would maintain them, it would maintain its yard. So everything that was in its business all the way to serving the consumer, even following up with the consumer afterwards and customer care, the railway company would own. 
Now, within the railway company, there were two ways to look at the, the, the uh, restructuring. We had to do the following. Within a division, we had to make it efficient and restructure it. So assuming the railway line had, I think the railway line had 12 divisions, if I wasn't mistaken. And each of these divisions had to be made more efficient and restructured within the railway company. Once we did that, we then had to look at the whole railway company and said, how can we make the whole thing efficient? And we had to decide which of those divisions need to stay there. And we eventually took the head office staff, and this is not an exaggeration, down from something like 3,000 employees to a head office staff of about 100 employees in nine months. So we, we dramatically pared it down, and the model we came up to is that head office would simply be a gatekeeper, but all of the operating divisions, details, all of the operating decisions on everything, whether you have to buy this locomotive and so on, would have to be made within the division responsible for that, but they would simply go to the head office for major capital decisions and, in, in you know, um, um, uh, buy-in and approval. So we moved them from a... In the process we use is very interesting. They had a functional hierarchy where they were arranged by regions. So you had a north, south, east, west, middle region, and so on. We then we, we we've then moved them to a. The second step was to move them to a to arrange them by businesses. So we 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 destroyed the regional fiefdoms and we arranged them by businesses, which made more sense, right? You know, there's no point having a chief for one region when there's no economies there because he's running different businesses. So we arranged them by businesses, whereby all of the locomotive maintenance fell under one chief and he could manage it the best way he wanted by shutting down shunting yards, by aggregating a labor pool, by reorganizing training and so on. The third thing we did is then we then set up the businesses as standalone divisions with devolved business accountability. So the divisions were now making businesses, uh, uh, business decisions. And the final thing we did is that we passed over business accountability to them. So we actually split up the budgeting process so it wasn't made by HR, uh, sorry, by head office anymore. Uh, we, we simply set direction and decided to, to, to set the limits for budgets and give direction, but the actual implementation, how much was needed, the divisions had to do that, which is a difficult process. I mean, that took about, I think it took about three years to achieve, but it was a needed process. Now, while this was happening, you have to realize why governments privatize a business. You privatize a business to make money, and at the same time introduce efficiency. It's like what's happening in Greece right now, right? I mean, you've got the Greek government being told you've got to sell these businesses. The efficiency reason is one thing which they sell into the press, but the other main reason is that by selling these businesses, you bring in foreign direct investment, you know, hard currency to pay down debt. Now, what the government had decided to do is, which was interesting at the time, and I don't think it was wrong or right, it was just interesting, and maybe in hindsight it was right, it did work for them, is they wanted us to be brutal in splitting up the state-owned enterprise into as many businesses as possible. And the reason they wanted to do that is because they wanted to attract interest from as many companies as possible to buy these pieces. So their rationalization is, well, is if we split up the rail company into just four 
mega chunks. They would need these really big foreign suitors to come in and buy them. But if we could split them up into companies of varying sizes, they thought it would be easier to find suitors, right? And I think there is some rational thinking to that. It made sense. It, it actually worked for them eventually, right? And the other thing they also decided to do, which I thought was a clever idea at the time, but it, it had some implementation problems, is that they decided that they would not just allow other railway companies to, to buy the assets, which is what most companies, which is what most countries did when they privatized their assets. They said that anyone could buy it as long as they had some useful skill or they could bring in a group of people to manage the assets. For example, they would allow a a, a aviation company to buy one of the uh, rail assets provided the aviation company was willing to sign an agreement to continue supplying the rail company and had the necessary skills to to do so so figuring out what's going to comprise these multiple this portfolio of shattered businesses was a difficult process and I'll talk through how we did that so now once you've broken up the company right into 180 parts or whatever it was it was quite a lot of parts it's not that there it's not that the railway system doesn't need these companies Remember what i said earlier it's that the railway company doesn't need the, the the different companies the railway system needs it but the railway company the client doesn't need them so all of let's assume we're talking about the um Heavy maintenance depots, for example, they do the heavy maintenance on the depots and shunting yards. It's a capital-intensive side of the business. They need a large balance sheet. They do a large, a lot of, they do a significant amount of capital investment, and they need to incur a lot of capital expenditures to remain competitive. Now, for the railway system to work effectively, you need heavy maintenance depots to be running. I mean, you need to do this maintenance, but there's no reason why the railway company should do it. Their job was to keep the trains running on time and everything else should be parceled out and outsourced. Now, once you've split up all these, you know, once you split up the railway company into 150 companies, what is left as the core railway company now needs to have extensive painstaking contracts and licenses in place linking back each of the original parts which are now standalone companies into a service level agreement to serve the railway companies and those contracts are brutal i mean they have to cover everything from what's going to be delivered what will be the payment system what will be the penalty clauses it's um it's a nightmare and i'm going to show you it wasn't the fun part that we did but that was the part that ernest and young covered and they did an exceptional job i remember walking into the you know they had they were working out of a out of a meeting room, a fairly large meeting room, and they'd have these huge, huge charts on the wall linking up each of the parts of the business with these documents attached to each line connecting. If you have, comp if you have company A connected to the railway company, A would have a stack of documents outlining what's the deliverables, what's the payments, what's the payment clauses, what's going to be the enforcement procedures, what's going to be best practice, what's going to be the benchmarks for performance. I, I don't know who, I don't actually know who within Ernest & Young did that, but whoever did that did a very good job because we didn't have really any problems uh, once we rolled out the changes across the business. So that went ahead and it was difficult. Now, the one thing you have to understand is that no matter how much you plan, you don't know what's going to happen in the market, right? So, talking about the work Ernest & Young was doing, there's a lot of legal taxation 
auditing advice needed to to create those contracts and the client was obsessed because of the you know pressure they were getting in the press that they should get everything right and leave no stone unturned but the act of picking up every single stone and cleaning it with a vacuum cleaner means that you've got an army of lawyers tax advisors and accountants billing you some ridiculous fee like 20 million dollars or 10 million dollars i think the fee was something like 10 million dollars a week to 20 million dollars a week just to advise on those things so eventually one of the decisions we made because the firm was ultimately accountable for running it, right? Even though um, um, PwC is working on taxation and accounting issues, um, they still indirectly reported into us as the overall project um, um, management team here. We decided to use ad hoc contracts in place, and we decided that we would write up the contracts such that we could negotiate them within a certain range later which which dramatically cut down the legal fees and the accounting fees and the tax fees the other thing we did is that um we set up weekly meetings and these were massive meetings in a huge meeting room to manage internal negotiations so we had someone from each of the operating divisions someone from the executive team someone from you know the consulting firms were there well there were some several partners from each of the consulting firms there you know, any big issue that came out it could be quickly dealt with there and if it couldn't be dealt with there everyone knew it was an issue but it would be put aside and the parties would leave the working room and go out and deal with it and come back and present and these weekly meetings lasted a whole day so we'd start at 9 a.m and we'd finish at 6 p.m but we, we worked on a very very strict regime so we'd go through we try to cover something like you know 20 major items a day and it was very efficient the other one is that this idea of creating a band, a range for hired off contracts was a very clever idea that I think PwC came up with where they said that, look, don't agree the contracts now, just agree the ceiling price that the new company is willing to deal with and the full price that the other company is trying to deal with so that as long as it doesn't fluctuate outside of that, it's fine, but know full well that you can renegotiate around that. And it, and it worked pretty well, I think. I think it was a clever system. The weekly meetings worked very well, but you need a very good project manager there to run those meetings i ran them they were rotated you know different partners in the firm ran them each day and you had to be very very tight in the sense that you had to control the audience because if you, there are people there who love talking there are people there who have never gotten any respect from the company and if you bring them in there they just want to talk and talk and talk and also remember something when 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 people when consultants are brought in people try to justify why nothing good happened and they try to justify that by trying to explain how difficult things are so if you let people talk they'll spend most of the time justifying why they didn't do anything so you have to be very very controlled in another podcast i can explain the very tight processes we have to control workshops you know that we are brutally efficient in the way we do it the language the setup the way we capture notes the way we pass notes through the way we follow up on notes even the language we use is you know extensively choreographed to make sure we get results at the end now um, I spoke about that complex map of contracts and licenses once you have that you have a workable entity in theory you now got to set it up which is you know the fun part now I did mention that you know the government was setting the pace for privatization and I would say that they set the pace based on annual based on the annual address that the Minister of Transport was making at the time. So the Minister, at the beginning of one year, he would say, well, this is what we did last year, this is what we're doing this year. So, in a manner of speaking, 
if the minister was going to present in, I don't know, February, you would have to have done all of the thinking that he was going to present to uh, a government by December the previous year. So you could update him. He could go back and look at what this means for the financials of the country and he can come back and say, make these changes. So what he's presenting in, in February must be decided in December. So basically what that means is that we only have nine months of the year really to work on the analysis and we last for two months of the year to to take our best guess implementation schedule and tweak it based on what the government wants to achieve. And even then, you know, there would be monthly changes in priorities that would come through which would force us to tweak timelines. You know, for example, you know, once the Government Accountability Office came down with the ruling which said that the government is not going to be willing to pay for these SAP integrations anymore unless the following rules were met and we realized we couldn't meet the rules. Well, Anderson Young was leading that and they said we couldn't meet the rules and I, and I completely believe them. They had an extremely competent team there. And then we had to make changes. So, well, you know, it's not as if the government would say something in the public once a year and then we had a whole year to play catch-up. It was more a monthly reorient reorientation of what we were trying to do. And at the same time, things couldn't look very bad because if it looked too bad, buyers wouldn't come forward to buy some of these assets. So you, you're playing a very delicate tightrope whereby if you say things are going well, and they don't go well, you're going to have a big problem down the line because you're going to be out accountable for misleading people. On the other hand, if you say things are going bad, just so that you can always say, well, I told you things were going bad, you're going to ultimately wreck the entire project because there are going to be no suitors and the privatization may, may not go along. So what you have to do is you have to have a very tough internal process of where people would say what was actually happening. And then there was a very good follow-up team. And we had a follow-up team there which is typically my role in a project, but uh, because I was playing a more central role here, another partner would lead this and lead a crack team of associates to go out there and if problems are being faced, to get it fixed. So that whatever we were feeding into the senior partner who was feeding the minister was accurate. Now beyond that, let's just talk about the criteria for determining uh, how we're going to sell the assets, right? Now, you've got to imagine here, yeah, you've got different div businesses that are dramatically you know, different. You've got, for example, the smallest one may have revenue of about half a million dollars. The largest one may have revenue of a billion dollars or something like that, right? Beyond that, you can have some that were profitable purely because of the regions they were given to control, because of the way fiefdoms had been set up, because this guy knew that chief operating officer and was given more profitable lines to run. And you have others which were constantly underperforming because of the way they were set up. Others were constantly performing because they were running a business well, but they didn't have the resources to run it. So it, you know, it's not about who's profitable and who's not profitable. It's about why they're not profitable. And you know, it's like you know when the, when the British left all their colonial empires and they redrew maps. It's a little bit like that, yeah. You've got all these warring fiefdoms which over 50 years or more had learned to dislike this division, dislike this region, and then we're coming along and redrawing the maps, not based on what's best for us to exit our troops, but best, what's based on the best decision to keep the, the business economically viable. And I can assure you 
those are not pleasant discussions when you've got two guys who spend all their time insulting each other and you tell them, you know what, you guys have to work together and both of you can't be the CEO, one of you has to be the chief operating officer and one of you is going to be the boss. Difficult relationships, difficult conversations, I've had a few of them, but I think at the end of the day, the threat of losing your job convinces people to work together. I mean, a lot of people left of their own accord, but enough people decide to make it work. And beyond just revenue and why revenue and profits were the way it was, we had included other criteria like the size, because the government wanted enough small businesses so that enough suitors would come forward. Preparedness, right? If a business was more prepared in terms of its reporting system, its ability to compete with competitors in the market, we'd probably take them to market first. Management maturity, no one's going to buy a screwed up management team. Saleability, saleability is more than just the management team. It's about the liabilities that sit in the business. It's about the technology they have. It's about the likelihood or the longevity of the contract this new company will have with the railway line and obviously its resource requirements. If you're going to be, you know, if you're going to be creating a company that is only generating um, I don't know 50 billion uh, not 50 billion let's say 500 million dollars in revenue but needs a four billion dollar capital injection to remain competitive you've got serious issues so you, you can imagine the difficulty of thinking about how in the world are we going to split up this entire company into like 150 small companies while meeting these criteria, but still keeping the trains running on time, because there are people using the the sub uh, the subway system, there are people, there are major companies using the trains. We have to do all of these things and ensure nothing goes wrong, right? So a difficult process. Now, the final ranking was not set by the consultant. We, although I was leading that team, I didn't set the final ranking. I gave my best assessment with the team of. Um, what we thought the government should do and they were ranked in basically we ranked them in batches for transfer to the private sector so we worked with the government we gave them our best recommendation they went through it and, and i must say they had a pretty crack team of corporate finance people there and i mean not just a crack team a, a team that everyone wanted to work with because i remember very clearly the first day i arrived and on site which was i think a tuesday morning i arrived late and they said, Michael, you've got to meet the corporate finance team that's also the internal consulting. When I walk into this room, is all these women. It's like the only department where you actually have all women and they are all fairly attractive. So everyone wants to work with these women. And, you know, which obviously clogs the processes quite significantly. But they were very good. I mean, they were astonishingly good, despite the fact that I think a lot of the organization treated them like they actually had no role. You've got, a, you've got a company that's moving bulk commodities run by men who think that the ability to push a heavy object is the only thing that gives you the criteria to get the corner office. But there was an outstanding department that made my life a whole lot easier. So we did the, the, the ranking in batches and the, the process of building a complete batch. So how do we know a batch is complete? We have to have uh, the production of a long-form financial report, forecasts, estimation on capital projections. We then have to have an issuing the invitations to tender, which again is a difficult process because you have to be able to produce all kinds of financial projections, threat assessments, um, estimates of revenue, which means we have to then go back to the Perlin company and project how much market share they're going to keep, assessment of bids, and then we have to complete the franchise agreements, which was ran, which is run by all of that process, although we, I wouldn't say we oversaw it, but we did have a, the biggest input that was run by an investment bank, and we were the main source of the, 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 the clean data. 
that entire process of running through all of the batches, so I assume you have like 18 batches, one batch will enter the process going through the invitation to tender. It'll sp two months in that process, two months to wait for an indicative bid, one to two months for shortlist, another month for final bidding, another month to awa award the franchise, and another month to complete the franchise. So basically, from start to finish, the batch is live from about probably March to December, so about nine months. And once the batch is deactivated, that means we've found someone to buy the company. So you've got about 18 batches. One batch starts off. Once it moves into the next phase, another batch sta starts off. And you've got to manage all of these things. So you've got something like 150 companies going through 18 batches. It's a complicated process, right? Uh, beyond that, um, we realized that very quickly that the government had made a pretty smart decision because they were not getting enough tenders from other railway companies outside of this country and neighboring countries. So we expedited the recalculation of the financial data with PwC to show how much cash flow these units could generate and we upped our game on projecting the debt requirements because what we wanted to show is that if you were a bus company for example that bought into the railway structure you probably have to find some way to invest in this because you can't take your existing assets as a bus company and, and deploy it into a railway system you don't have that redundant assets where you can get synergy so this was a very very big thing because if we are selling it to other railway companies it's possible they get synergies economies of scale and they could do it cheaper but if you get selling it to a company that has no expertise in railway lines you have to find a way for this business to be self-sustaining so it paid for itself or at least sustaining for part of the process until the bus company figured out what they were doing and was comfortable enough to make more investments now i'm not saying that we had to fudge the numbers and show them all cash flow positive but we had to be clear about which ones were cash flow positive so that those were most likely to attract non-railway companies and those which were not cash flow positive whereby railway companies would be more inclined to buy them so you could get the economies we were searching for and again, I mean, PwC did an as astonishing job there. I must say to you that, you know, we've we sat in many taxation workshops, and I have no clue what those people were discussing. I mean, I, I mean, I get the general gist, right? But taxation sounds easy; it's not easy at all. There's so many things to consider there, and PwC had these um, had these two partners. I forget their names, but what impressed me about them is that they they didn't speak in a tax language. You know, you've got management consultants leading the discussion. Everything we communicate is a very simple language. And they could have very easily have made the process horrible for everyone by only speaking the taxation language. But these guys stood up and they just were speaking our language. And things moved along so quickly and they were very, very clued up on decisions. They had a very good system whereby we'd raise something in the middle of the meeting. Someone, one of the partners would step out give the instruction to an associate or whatever they call their people to to do the background research before the meeting was over they'd get a one page printout you know one page not even like 20 pages this is the question these are the alternatives these are the implications which made it very easier for us to make decisions and and you know i haven't worked a lot with accounting companies but to me that was as good as what you would find in, at least on the communications and understanding their business. I'm not saying they'll be great consultants, but on terms of communication and managing the teams and keeping momentum, that was best practice, right? Now, um, we sp I spoke a little bit about long-form reports for each business. 
Um, one thing we didn't realize is that when the regulator was setting up the protocol and process to manage the privatization program, they put in a lot of onerous processes calling for a lot of legally required documents that outlined what is happening in the marketplace, analyze the operating environment, analyze employment contracts, contractual frameworks um, um, uh, uh, between companies, financial records, tax implications, and we had to do that knowing, having very little clue in terms of what was going to come two years down the line, or even one year down the line, but also to explain a business to a market that didn't understand what the business was. For example, how do you explain an, a, a locomotive R&D business to a market that doesn't understand this and is bidding for a business it's never owned before because it wants to enter a new market? So you, you're, building, you're building these reports thinking that people who know the industry are going to look at it and then you've told midway through that the regulators launched new regulations and you have to redesign the reports in a, in a different language. So it made it very difficult, right? Beyond that, because we're building this as we go along, it's very difficult for us to know firstly what are going to be the new companies. We haven't decided this. So before we even go ahead and do the manpower uh, uh, review and the employment contract review and the financial forecasts, we have to first decide how the company is going to be carved up. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the consulting team to do that because that's our primary role before Ernest & Young and the PwC and the, you know, um, bankers can go ahead and run their own production. So I think that doing that forecast was hard enough, but if you've done financial forecasting, you know that you need to have historical information and producing these long-form reports for companies that had no financial track record was basically, you know, painful to do actually. But it was a learning process, you know. Um, I think that over time the team from PwC and Ernest and Young and so on learned what information was useful, what was not useful. Also, one thing I liked that Ernest and Young did is they developed this nice templating system that made it easy to collect information and cross-reference it. You know, BW, uh, BCG and McKinsey have the same thing, but remember we don't do the the, the 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 level of depth of financial modeling that Morgan Stanley was doing here, we didn't do the level of depth of financial modeling um, that PwC was doing for doing the taxation reports and so on. So it was nice for them to set up a system whereby f we, it was very easy for us to see what they were doing because they created these templates and they linked everything into the template. So if I pull up a template and I question something and I made the change, everything flowed through, which is a you know it was nice of them to do that. It made it a lot easier for us to to make things work. Now, it took the first group six months to produce the first report for the first company. That's how difficult the process was. Because they'd do a report, make some assumptions, and we'd come back and say, actually, we decided that this division is not going to be structured the way you wanted to for these reasons, which wasn't important to them. So make these changes. So it took them six months to develop a process for building the long-form financial reports that was flexible enough to deal with the changes that we were making and eventually they were able to cut down the time to produce those reports from six months to about one and a half months which is pretty good in this industry right so you know kudos to them for doing that now one thing we didn't expect was that the efficiency targets that we expected to be achieved during after privatization were already starting before the privatization even began because the railway company was preparing for this, right? So
we were in a position whereby the people who didn't want the privatization to go along were saying, look, there is improvement going along without the privatization, so why are you doing the privatization? But one thing they, they didn't realize is that, yes, there was some improvement being made, but if the privatization did not go along, the momentum would be lost and the complete changes would not take place. And it looked bad, because think about this in real terms, right? People know they're going to lose their jobs to start working harder. Because they work harder and they work more smartly, efficiency goes up a little. And everyone says, don't do the privatization, the company is fixing itself. Now, the privatization begins. We're pulling out resources. We're forcing people to run different analysis. We're asking tax managers and financial managers in the company, you've got to spend four hours extra learning the software, creating these reports that you didn't have before. So w what an external person sees is this increase in profitability, increase in efficiency because everyone's scared of losing their jobs. And then they see a dip when the privatization starts because... They think the privatization is not good. So you've got to deal with that media spin. The media says and the opposition says efficiency is increasing. Actually, the day the privatization process began, efficiency actually drops. Efficiency is bad. And, you, and you know, explaining complicated logic of how privatization works doesn't work in a soundbite in the media. And I mean, the minister got hammered. You know, he got totally creamed because of that because he couldn't really explain it very well. And secondly, the press doesn't want to hear it and the, the consumers don't want to hear it. They don't see that logic because it can't be converted to a soundbite. So, you know, you have to deal with those kind of things. Now, let's talk about commercializing, you know, the, the, the new businesses. Now, the first thing is you have to install... So, I, up until now, I've been talking about the, priori the privatization process. Now, I'm going to talk about once you've decided which businesses you're going to split up, once you've set up the structure to split them up, once you have the legal agreements in place, how do you get them ready to operate commercially. And there's three things you have to do. Install business, proce business processes, new ones. Build the capabilities to use those processes and have people that actually have a commercial mindset. Now, let's think about the processes and mindset of a state-owned enterprise. You've got the processes is about, you've got an annual cost budget with no carry forward. So there's no incentive to be efficient. If you don't spend it, they take it away from you. Decisions are made at the head office or the government level, so there's no accountability. The mindset is there's no indecence, there's no incentive to develop long-term strategic plans because why? No one is going, your budget's not a rolling budget, it's stuck per year. So what happens is that because there's no accountability, because your budget is set the way it is, and because you can't, you have no control over long-term thinking, people respond very uh, tactically to initiatives. If they see something that takes more than a year or is a capital project, they won't push for it because they're not sure what's going to happen after a year. The budget may get cancelled and they end up running a project that's incomplete and they will be you know, pilloried in the press for running something that was started but finished even though they were not started sorry, but never finished and looks bad, even though it was not never their decision never to, to, to remove the funding and leave a half-complete project. You know, there's definitely a tendency to, to spend it or lose it. Um, there was no incentive for business, of improving the business fundamentals. There's a, also a lack of commercial understanding. It's not just that people didn't want to do the right things. They weren't trained to know how to do the right things. Um, and there was, no, there was no incentive to continue working with each other because fiefdoms were set up based on how to reduce conflict versus reducing efficiency. So, for example, if you disagreed with someone, you fight with them long enough, the unions are never going to let you get fired, so what does the company do? 
they simply move you to another part of the business even if it's going to hurt efficiency such that they don't have to damage the working conditions and i mean there's always you know uh, disagreements in terms of what is the actual versus the perceived changes that need to take place in the business now i mentioned before that the uh, the business had started working on the changes required before the privatization they started with the hardware investment which was a pretty silly idea then they went with the software investment about a year later then they went with the standalone accounting system which was came through about a year after that so over the sequence of three years they rolled out hardware software and the accounting system right which was kind of funny because when they did roll up the accounting system they realized the hardware they installed couldn't manage the new SAP system which meant they had to redo the hardware system which is why even though the businesses had been set up to operate in a certain way they took a long time to get the efficiencies going because they couldn't get the reports they wanted to see whether they were efficient or, or inefficient right and the other thing is that the businesses had to begin producing business plans that's the other change we made we devolved all the accountability to the business if you want to do something put together a plan and defend it people had never learned how to put together a plan they didn't know how to run a budgeting workshop and each head office wasn't even ready to deal with the process of handing over so much power to the business unit so you know you had to teach them how to do this which is not a simple process you have to actually have to over a period of four months come in there and run the budgeting process for them so that they can see how things are done now in terms of the big changes the new systems was the new accounting system in place the major new business process was rolling out budgeting and business plans and and, and at the simplest level the businesses that understand the relationship between cost and revenue which they weren't able to do before because they weren't getting the information and they were ever incentivized for that the other big one is you had to build capabilities in the staff which is effective teaming skills and train individuals to operate as a unit because soon you're going to release them into the market remember most of the business is going to be released as standalone private businesses all over the world and beyond that you've also got a process whereby whatever stays within the state-owned enterprise which will now be privatized also has to learn to operate on a commercial basis which is not easy for anyone to do but you know what they have to learn how to do it and finally you have to give them the skills to learn how to not just keep the business they have with the state-owned enterprise but they have to start hunting for new businesses beyond the state-owned enterprise and you know i talked about the budgeting system but i just want to go back there in the pr in the public sector you have an annual cost budget with no carry forward first big thing the second thing is you've got internal investment schemes which are generally put forward by government committees for approval and you've got a short-term thinking now how is it different after privatization privatization you're managing for the bottom line you you if you if you put if you run the business well you're given more resources right so there is a carry forward there secondly investment schemes are determined internally the, the head office is there just to approve the limits but how you spend that is your decision and because you have a reward system developed based on how you perform you are willing to say hey, you know what let's do this over two years because the reward is so great rather than saying let's do everything we can under one year because we don't know what's going to happen after two years so that process took a lot of time and it was a four-month process of rolling out a new prioritization workshop and it's for a different podcast I can talk about how we built the prioritization scheme because I did come back a little bit to help them think that through even though I didn't actually run that project 
but it was interesting and it definitely worked now charging for services you got to think about this right let's assume previously in the state-owned enterprise you had maintenance and you had the railway lines they worked in the same company. They, they never really charged each other, but they should. Now, what happens when you split them up? What happens when maintenance is a standalone company not owned by the slimmed-down state-owned enterprise? Well, what you have a situation is where you have to charge for services that were previously integrated into companies, into the same company, and to do that, you had to understand the links for management between costs and revenue, right? And that's, uh, it sounds easy to do, but in most companies, when you have different units doing different things, you have transfer pricing, governing the control of pricing. So when you split them up, you already have a precedent. For those people who don't know, transfer pricing is the way, let's assume you're making shoes, right? And one part of this company dyed the shoe and the other one took the dyed shoe and put a, a heel onto it. When the company that was dyeing the shoe had to give it to the comp to the when, the when the division that was dyeing the shoe had to give it to the division that was putting a sole onto it, it had to determine at what price does it release it. Now, in a well-managed company, they have a transfer pricing system that determines the cost of price at which the goods will be moved from one unit to the other one. So that if they do decide to split out a unit, they have some idea of how to price the relationship. This company didn't have that. So we had no historical basis to do that. And we had to go out there and do like a heck of a lot of analysis, which didn't even come from this country because they were the only railway line operator. Think of the relationships and reconstruct it with this company. I can't say we were 100% accurate, but I don't think you could have been more accurate. But imagine sitting in front of people there and telling them, look, we're not 100% accurate, but we're as accurate as we can be. People always like to say, you need to give me the right answer before we do this. You know, how can I do this? You know, you, you, you're not telling me what's the correct answer to do. And one of the things you learn as a consultant is how to manage people. And again, that's for a different podcast. How do you manage a potentially violent group of redneck managers who have a belly the size of the table and could probably knock you down and sit on you and suffocate you? How do you get them to agree with you in that situation? It's, it's pretty difficult to do, but there are ways to do it. And you've got to get them to, to understand that there is no better answer because of the way the company was managed, because of the way they managed it, although you can't tell them that, this is as good as it's going to be. And I think it worked out well in the end, but it's that kind of discussion that is very difficult to do. And then, of course, we didn't do this. We did some of the training, but mostly for senior management, but a whole lot of training companies were brought in to teach managers and HR about how to do skills assessment, how to set up incentivization schemes, how to set up bonus structures, how to get teams to work in... Um, problem solving, how to sell, which is something they never did before, how to compete for commercial tenders, a difficult process, right? And the interesting thing about this project is that there is a complete bogus myth that when you go out and you make a state-owned enterprise smaller, you don't care about the parts you release into the market. That's absolute nonsense. You absolutely care about the parts you release into the market because your client is dependent upon the success of the parts you release into the market. If you release the maintenance arm into the market and the maintenance part fails or cannot do their job, what happens? Your trains look terrible or they don't run or worse, you get 
a fatal incident. So, you know, we spend a lot of time making sure those businesses that are released are ready for the real world when they get out there. And, and I think that, you know, that's one of the things you have to understand about operating with state-owned enterprise. very different from a, from a commercial business whereby if you're going to spin out something, you don't care. All you care about is responding to the shareholders, right? But for a state-owned enterprise, it matters that the newly released businesses actually do pretty well. So, the other big thing we had to do, which we always knew we'd have to do, was to force, well, we never forced it, but to recommend the um, state-owned enterprise, or what was left of it, hire extensively from the private sector to plug the gaps that existed. I mean, you can train people as much as you want them to learn how to manage a business in commercial terms, but it's hard to do it. And you gotta, you got to decide how much time did... How much time do you want to spend training before actual the actual doing takes place? And it's a trade-off you have to make, right? Instilling the you know commercial mindset was difficult. Probably the biggest challenge of all, because even though even when the privatization was ongoing, people always thought it would be cancelled because it had started a few times before and it had been cancelled. So it was clear that you know the entire organization was going to be privatized. I think the signal was the fact that most of the businesses were broken up. We had already put them into the market through the tendering process. Some had already been purchased. Others were going through the, the lock-in process. Um, I think that the reality sets in. People get apprehensive about job security. And as I said, they want to appear indispensable and they're open to change. When people feel they're about to lose everything, they're willing to change anything. And it's something that we planned very well with the head office to make sure that they were ready with a system to roll out and to roll out the most complicated things when that time occurred. So when the when the employees were not as amenable to change, we went through with the things that would show them change was inevitable. And when they saw change was inevitable, we then rolled out the most difficult things. It was like, it's a clever tool in change management, right? So, you know, everything eventually worked i suppose relatively well um you know the best way to look at a success of a project is to look at it a few years later and it's now what eight or ten years since this happened you know maybe even more actually you know so looking back you know to what degree did the government achieve the objectives they're the client what did they achieve you know did the opinion of the privatization improve or, or become worse afterwards and you know lessons is what would be the prerequisites for effective privatization and what are the lessons we could take out of this so the government never really set an objective they always said we're going to privatize to introduce efficiency to introduce profitability and to reduce the debt burden in our books which to be honest they were able to achieve if they had set a timeline to that i think they would have overestimated but because they never set a timeline we were able to hit that target because there was no timeline, right? I think the clearest achievement is the fact that the businesses we spun out and identified would be viable ended up being viable. Efficiencies went up. Costs went down in servicing the railway company. There was a period of consolidation, but that's typically normal. We did get a range of buyers for the assets. Most of the buyers did not back out of commitments when they couldn't raise funding. And 
the one failure, I would suppose, was the fact that not enough foreign investment came in, but private sector did step in. So, you know, I think you can you can call it a very successful project. Now, looking back, has the railway line actually improved? Yes, undeniably. They're cleaner, it's cheaper. The fact that it doesn't make the news is always a good sign. Um, businesses are no longer complaining. Um, in fact, a large chunk of the railway system that we kept in the pared-down state-owned enterprise end up being sold into the private sector because they didn't need to control it. The, the, the government only controls the commercial the, the consumer lines, not the commercial lines serving businesses, right? Ticket prices have gone up, sorry, gone down. Uh, you know, quality surveys say consumers are far more happy to use the, the lines. So the, de the, the, the disaggregation, privatization, fragmentation of the market worked. And I think, you know, I do keep media coverage of projects I've worked in, and you know, looking at them now, they're like some of them are in front of me. The media perception has been positive, you know. Um, I think that some of those individual companies we wanted to spin out, spin out. I think the number of something like nine out of forty-eight of them who wanted to do management buyout successfully went through. So why is that important? Because it means that we managed to convince some of the management teams who didn't really want to be accountable to actually believing in the futures of their business. But it also means that the financial projections were so compelling, so transparent, and so realistic that the employees actually bought in to the future of these businesses, which is almost unheard of in a state-owned enterprise, where employees are trying to jump ship because they don't think it's going to be going to work. And to me, that was one of the most important um, signals of the success of the project while we were there to see the number of management buyouts that were taking place. So what did the project team do, do, do well? Right? Now, when I say the project team, I'm referring to you know us, PwC, Ernest & Young, and the um, bankers, but I'm going to focus primarily on you know the management consultants here. I think that we were we prepared well. We prepared well in the sense that we had never done something on this scale before. It was it was massive for the time. I think the partner running it pulled in as many senior people who had a unique perspective. He brought me in because I understood the clients and understood state-owned enterprises. I know nothing about railway lines. In fact, it's a very funny incident whereby we were in one of our earliest meetings. The CFO makes a joke about, yeah, I'm sure everyone's been on a railway line, you know, and then uh, has used a railway and and... I forget how it actually comes out, but someone says something and, and something about putting your hands up and I don't put up my hand and he says, you've never been on a rail? You've never been on a train? I say, nope, never been on a train. And people start jo making jokes about that and so on. But the point is that I think the senior partner didn't just bring in rail experts. He brought in people who would understand the bigger picture issues there. Second thing we did well is that we had an aggressive critical path mapped out. Yeah, we knew things were going to change, but we knew that if we did this first, this had to be second, this had to be third. It doesn't matter what comes our way. It doesn't matter if the third item is pushed back by two weeks. It must be done. Third thing we did well is we learned from each task. The first time we had to present to the minister and that didn't go so well, it actually was a bit of a disaster, there was a good regroup afterwards where the senior partners and the junior partners got together and said, okay, this didn't go well. What are the lessons? Blah, blah, blah. Who should do the next presentation? What have we learned from this? So there was that constant huddle break, huddle break, huddle break. And because I think because I think PwC and Ernest & Young and the bankers were so efficient, diligent, there were no leaks as well, which made it good. 
it made it easy to share things with them. And I think when you're working on these big projects where you have different companies, there's no sharing. Everyone does their own thing, but we were willing to share with them. We trusted them. They reciprocated by sharing more than they could. In fact, they even set up a different system so that we could get access to their material. So again, a continuous huddle break, huddle break, and that worked very well. There's also a clever system of transferring knowledge. I, I talked about the corporate finance team, which my unit worked with. I mean, obviously, the guys in my team wanted to work with those corporate finance ladies, but the point is, there was never a point here whereby we felt, oh, this is a multi, tens of million dollar engagement, let's milk this guy. It was never that. It was always about, look, there's a lot at stake here. Our job is when we work with this person, they should learn that skill within a week or two weeks so that we don't have to, you know, hold their hands and we can move on to something else so what happened is that because we are constantly transferring knowledge we had to bring something new to the table because after a while i remember once talking to the head of the corporate finance team and she's telling me oh michael that's an impressive you showed me that a week ago i know how to do it so she'd make this joke but there's there's actually a hidden message there we were to constantly dazzle that client because we were so successful transferring our knowledge to them that we had to bring something new repeatedly. Over a four-year engagement, you we had to constantly up our game or we'd be kicked out, right? So that's what the project team did well. And and I think maybe the fifth thing here is the learning process. And, and I'll mention this. It's maybe a mundane point, but it's important to me. I've never, I would never been on a train before this project. So I had no idea what a railway system looks like. I mean, it was quite funny for me. When you don't know anything about a project or a sector, when you go to a client, they always arrange these tours for you to visit their facilities. Most consultants treat it as a stupid exercise and they don't take it seriously. I take those things seriously. And I take it so seriously that when I arrange these facility tours, I do not take senior people with me, at least more senior than I am. So I never took the two senior partners with me. Why did I not do that? Simple. When you take a senior person with you, they dictate the agenda. If a senior person, in this case, all of the other partners had real world experience, and if I was traveling with them, they already know this. So they're not going to take the time to sit there and ask stupid questions. I'll take junior people with me. So I can ask the most ridiculous questions to the junior levels of the railway company. And because they are junior people, they are never going to worry about you know feeding this back to the board. They probably don't know the board. But I use those exercises as a major learning lesson. But it's how you set it up. Don't take senior people with you. Because they get frustrated when you waste their time, right? I mean, there's no way I'm going to take a senior partner. At that time, one of the senior partners were on the project who sits in the management committee for the firm. I'm not going to draw him through this day-long boarding exercise when he knows everything. So I leave him in the office and I go along with some of the junior people. I go along with some of the junior people who I want to understand the detail, but I also ask the dumb questions, right? Now, what could have made this privatization process more efficient? Simple. Have financial records. Even if you have no idea you're going to privatize, at least have financial history in place so you can build up a financial record so if you ever have to privatize, you have the background information, right? Second, I would think that this is probably easier said than done. Don't make decisions for personal reasons. Make decisions for economic reasons, or in other words, make decisions for consumers first. And I'm going to say it, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. The other one is that start the consultation with the private sector pretty early. You know, we were releasing early versions of the, of the, of the records to potential bidders well in advance. They were not inaccurate, but they were simpler versions. And we then send them in two weeks a, a better cut version of it. It's actually not the way the bank recommended we do it, because the bank was under the, the you know the the 
mindset that you got to you know hit them and hit them hard with the right information but we said look you're never going to hit them and hit them hard because everything we're doing is being reported in the press so why don't we get the real information to them versus getting them to read the wrong information in the press and that way the, it's going to get out in the press anyway because they're going to leak it but at least we're not leaking things that are confidential we are leaking things we want them to read anyway and we're leaking things that everyone wants them to read so that went well. I think the idea of having clear roles and responsibilities work well. And I'll give an example of those tax planning meetings. As a consulting firm, our job is to understand the f overall financial implication of the taxation decisions made. But we have to leave it to PwC to trust them that when we get into a meeting and we're talking about the mechanics of taxation, they're going to run it. There's not going to have these awkward silences whereby PwC looks at us and we look at PwC and no one knows what to do. Clear lines, are, clear roles and responsibilities, which means there must be a level of trust, which is built before the meeting. Finally, your plan has to be flexible. I tell this to people all the time. Nothing in consulting goes according to plan, so be prepared to chop and change things as often as you want. The final lesson is that one of the early decisions we made is that government should expect to pump in billions of dollars into this uh, private, into the state-owned enterprise even after the privatization process begins because you don't know what will be the appetite for foreign investors. So, that was a pretty difficult decision, but it was the right decision. Because while the company became profitable, it took a lot longer than we had ever anticipated. When we knew from our previous work of working with state-owned enterprises, things always take longer than thought. They didn't think that because they thought they were so well organized. But it happened. I mean, you know, the, the subsidies, for lack of a better word, that the government provided were able to keep passenger numbers up, revenue numbers up, so that it kept the cash flow of those businesses humming. That's not misleading. That's all reported in the financial statements that the subsidies are there. But it gave the potential bidders a chance to see that a market can exist. If they can find a way to buy these businesses that we were releasing and cut out unnecessary costs. Because if we didn't give the subsidies, the market would have collapsed and we'd have said, well, the market collapsed because of no subsidies. But no one's going to buy an unattractive business. If the subsidies were there, you could always argue what people would say they were not going to buy it because of the subsidies, but it's not true because the one thing you're showing them is that a market does exist. It just has to be served much more profitably. So, everything worked in that project very well. My first and only railway project, I am not an expert in railway lines, but what I was able to do is because I understood the way railway lines are run so well, I could take that back when I went to the energy companies and the resources companies when they had to, you know, if you know anything about resources and energy companies, they spend billions upon billions upon billions of dollars setting up um, infrastructure to move oil, uh, coal, oil, and whatever else they are moving from their operations to the ports, and they usually build and manage their own ports. So it's, it's a big part of their expenses. So I could understand that and I could take it back. So this is quite a long podcast. But I wanted those who have an interest in, in high-end corporate strategy, high-end turnaround work, high-end private equity work to understand some of the deep thinking that goes into setting up these projects. It's exciting, but difficult. As always, I'll be happy to respond with any comments or any queries you may have.